This is episode one. Yes. Of Sarah's space. Sarah's space. My name is Alyssa. My name is Sarah. How did we end up here? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, you are a longtime student of mine. I believe I met you when you, correct me, were you 10 or 11? 10. 10. And you are now 28 mm-hmm. and a lifelong friend. And I am blessed and beyond grateful to say that and to also say that in the relationships I've had with my students, they have created this wonderful legacy that I now get to share. Why are we doing a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) We're doing a podcast because for years, years, literally, I think I can date this back almost, well, I've been teaching for 38 years almost. I think this could probably go back about 34. I've been being asked by students to write a book of which would be fabulous uh not not saying the book would be fabulous maybe it would, it would be, be fabulous. Okay. <laughs> it would be fabulous i don't want to be that confident that quickly uh, <laughs> i would love to write a book i just have had two major things that have stopped me before i had a child and brought other wonderful excitement into my life i i had the time on that level but i didn't have the focus i couldn't decide about what one thing would this book be about Thereby, a podcast in which there are smaller episodes of thoughts and sharings that could possibly be much more uh, varied and multidimensional, that's how that came about. But that didn't exist 34 years ago, so it wasn't an option. That's true. Yeah. It would have had to been a book. It would have been exactly. Going back to the book, of which I did start several versions, and none of them were uh, to be seen by anyone's naked eyes other than my own (laughs) Yes, they all just mused. They just wandered off on this big tangent of, and then, and I felt like I was having many conversations and I felt like they were personal conversations with people that weren't in the room. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't going to be for a general audience. It would have been a fantastic gift to a graduating class, I think. That but, could have been my graduating sorry, class. Sorry, I gave you a dance. <laughs> what, what more do you want? <laughs> I would have loved a book. Okay, <laughs> now I know. All right, when you um, turn 40... I'll give you a book. That gives me some time. I, I figure I'm cutting myself some slack there. 12 years. Actually, how old am I? Am I 29? I'm 29. Oh, am I 29? Did you no, I'm 28. 20? Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I still have 12 years then. 12 years it is. I think I could do it. Yeah. Until then, it'll be 12 years of a podcast. 12 years of a podcast. There's a whole other title. 12 years of a podcast. No, that's not very catchy. No, it's not Let's very let catchy. let that one go. Yeah. Sarah's Space. Sarah's Space. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's catchy. So Sarah, yes, your students have asked you, mm-hmm. can you speak a little bit about yourself? Uh, in what respect? As in the now time or just who, who am I? Who are you? Yes. Where did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I won't go way, way back. <laughs> but, uh, I was uh, born in Ontario. My family would be described, I'm sure, by most standards nowadays as hippies or bohemians. Uh, They did not self-describe as that. My parents are both highly intelligent, outside-the-box sort of people that came from families in which there was a great deal of unhappiness. And they were not going to stay in the place where they were from and they weren't going to stay in the place where that unhappiness was. So they traveled the world for eight years, actually. Uh, Four of them after I was born, which was kind of exciting because I got to 
join in. And I don't recall most of it, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the first year of my life was spent in a small, I don't know what the Spanish name would be for it, but it was a small home on the island of Ibiza, which was not what the island of Ibiza is now. It was really a rustic Spanish island off the coast of Spain. And I have fleeting uh, picture memories of that, but nothing concrete. And then my mom has tons of actual photographs that she showed me. So they sometimes trigger little warm, let's just call them uh, not particularly focused, but warm thoughts that maybe I actually am having a connection to that time, or maybe it's just, you know, how we're wishful thinking. And then I spent um, some of my childhood in Ontario in a very rundown old farmhouse on, I believe it was about 80 acres in which there was no central heating. I believe there was electricity, but it was so poorly insulated and so poorly ill-kept that we actually lived in two rooms. One of them was the bedroom that had the chimney coming up it or through it so it could stay warm. And the other one was the kitchen, the two central. I think those are the needs in people's lives, <laughs> food and sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mom has a, and writ, wrote it in my baby book as well, that my first word, I believe when we got there, I was, I had turned one or maybe I was 11 months. Don't recall exactly. I must have turned one. My first word was co, as in cold. Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So so we got there in the dead of winter, as you can only imagine. From Ibiza. From Ibiza. Yeah. So we, uh, she does have some fantastic pictures of tunnels of of snow on either side that had to be dug to get to the outhouse. Oh yeah. We didn't have indoor plumbing either. Wow. Yeah. So that, that sort of, I think nutshells my childhood. I had many homes like that. The childhood home that I spent my time in from five until 16 uh, had no running water. It did have electricity and it did not have central heating. So one of my chores when I got old enough, when I awoke in the morning and came inside from my, so when I got old enough, I was, when I was 13, my brother and I had shared a room up until that point, uh, which was, I found out later actually had been built as a closet. (laughs) So it was exactly six feet across or five feet across. Must have been five feet across. And uh, my dad built bunk beds at the far end across that. And when I got to the point where he just felt it was unsuitable for me to be sharing a room with my brother, he bought a little, I think it was 14 feet, 13, 14 feet long trailer that they parked at the end of this long driveway. So it was on the outside of the house. Of course, I didn't have, you know, plumbing, heating, et cetera, in there or electricity. I had one of those, you know, those work lights you use for mechanics mm-hmm. and a little portable electrical heater that my dad rigged up with a bunch of long uh, extension cords and attached to those. Oh, it was very, very rustic. <laughs> the funniest thing is uh, that that was all outside Fort Langley, <clears throat> excuse me, which actually happened to be in what was called Hobby Farm area. So we were surrounded, literally surrounded by a lawyer, two lawyers and a doctor. So so a lot of professionals would come out there, get a quote unquote farm hmm. and have a one or two horses and then be able to have a bit of a tax shelter for their considerable uh, earnings, which then we in our little rental house, which at the time cost $80 a month wow. yeah, for a long, long time is on government controlled land. Uh, with our with our no running water and our no central heating, we were neighbors. So you can just imagine that it was, I, I grew up so outside the box anyways. I was naturally outside the box. My parents were outside the box. And then I was 
in this place where I was beyond outside the box <laughs> just by being so different. So you were outside the box in a trailer at the outside, end of the drive. Literally, literally in a box <laughs> with wheels. Yes. Um, so I would come in in the morning from 13 onwards and my chore was to try and start the fire for the house. Now, my dad naturally has uh, quite, I don't need, I can't even say they're nocturnal habits because he goes to sleep extremely early, wakes up extremely early. Mm-hmm. So sometimes he'd be up at four and he would already have started the fire, which I got up at quarter to six and I'd be so grateful because it caused such deep stress in my heart to try and start that fire. I swear for such an adept and fairly capable young woman, that was my my anathema. That was my thing that I, striking matches and then hoping and blowing on the, on the yeah, yeah. I didn't start very many successful fires. I know you laugh, but that, that was, I'm, I'm confessing, a deep confession. To this day when we're camping, you know, anyone else wants to start the fire, you go right ahead. I don't, I don't need to fulfill any you know, hidden childhood, unfulfilled dream. I've started many unsuccessful fires. As a self-proclaimed pyromaniac, a teenager, (laughs) you just needed some hairspray. That's all you need. Oh my goodness gracious. No, we didn't have hairspray in our household. (laughs) Nothing in an aerosol can. So that brings me actually to an important point. Uh, In that upbringing, uh, I just have my one three and a half year younger brother. I had parents who albeit we're not self-proclaimed hippies or bohemians, but being highly intelligent and interested in living life their own way had a lot of things that they would say, I won't even say casually because it was just, they're not casual people. It was just a way of our lives. And for instance, one that stands out in my mind right away and you bring it up is hairspray, aerosol cans. We had no aerosol cans and we had no saran wrap. And the no saran wrap was because of Hiroshima and that it was made from the same substance that they use. They dropped from the bomb that melted people. And my parents felt ethically very strong about that. Uh, Aerosol cans, because already, and it's amazing to me now when I think about how people are still denying climate change. My parents were already talking about the ozone layer when I was, I think, 11, 12. So that was many years Mm. ago. Yeah. So... A very unorthodox upbringing that I can say, although I did attend a public school from grade one onwards, I attended it in my own way. And I loved, I had a wonderful childhood that was filled with, oh, countless, that's a whole other six podcasts of the crazy adventures that would happen just from being unusual. (laughs) I'll just use all these euphemisms. (laughs) Shall we say different, unusual, the whole family being unusual and different. and, And yet in this incredibly, uh, let's say, higher middle-class affluent area of the mm-hmm. Lower Mainland, and then on top of it all, choosing to do ballet, which is not done by people that normally live in houses without electricity, running water, or yes. central heating. When was your first ballet class? Oh, uh, apparently it was when I was four, and I wore green because I love green, head to toe, I wanted, insisted on having green tights, didn't understand that. My mom didn't really understand about a lot of the, uh, shall we say, the structure or the niceties. And so I didn't have shoes. So I had little footless tights, bare feet. And I thought it was just marvelous because at that time I did actually luck into a lovely young woman who was teaching a ballet class, but she peppered it wonderfully with creative dance. So there was a lot of being trees and wind which, oh, that spoke to my little nature girl heart like crazy. Perfect for your green outfit. Absolutely. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Apparently, it's funny because I think it was either 
my mom or someone else who witnessed the class that remember was recalling it and saying this little person who wouldn't stay in one spot. And I actually had this memory of not understand. Why do we have to stand in a line? What are the lines about? Oh, I think circles are lovely and circles that just keep moving. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's fair to say from a young age, I liked movement. Hmm. What, um, I guess family dinner is what I immediately think about. (laughs) What was family dinner like at your house? Well, family dinner, I'm just going to share a very funny memory right off the bat. We had a table that I think most of our stuff was uh, either passed on to us by friends, uh, found in a dump. This was in the old days where the dump was divided into sections where there were things, you know, cast off furniture and such, and it wasn't a big mess. And people could go and you could scavenge and end up with things. So we had a a plethora of interesting items in our house. Um, Some were passed on by friends. I feel like there was a lot of secondhand shop hunting around in there, garage sales, things like that. We had this one table that I think was so your average dinner table size and certainly height. But now that I think back, it was an old fashioned teacher's school desk. So it had it had a spot where a lip, say the lip of the desk came down, I would say about six inches. And then there was a space where probably a drawer was. I remember two things about that. It provided it wonderfully subtle way of sneaking things like oh what's that horrible thing that I cannot stand oh no I'm gonna forget it now it's not cabbage it's the little cabbages what are those Brussels sprouts yes (laughs) couldn't stand Brussels sprouts for some reason they were a bit of a staple of our diet oh and my mom had a huge garden so Uh everything was from the garden couldn't stand them and my beagle did so (laughs) I fed them to my vegetarian beagle because we were at that point almost completely vegetarian anyways. Uh, It was so easy to become a vegetarian. There really wasn't a lot of meat in our lives. And this table developed a bit of a wobble. So my dad uh, and I share a very similar temperament about things that don't work exactly right. We want to fix them right now, but we often don't have the time nor the patience to fix them. And my dad is a self-proclaimed anti-carpenter. He is the... um, the antithesis to carpentry, which is ironic because I married a carpenter. But he uh, took it out to the shed and he sawed off the remaining three table legs to even them out with the first table leg. Well, that exercise then brought in a couple hours later, and I can only imagine how many colorful invective brought in a table that could only be described as Japanese style. We ended up cross-legged on the floor. (laughs) three inches three inches more three inches more and those family dinners were filled with laughter uh my mom i know it's not politically correct and i probably might even get into trouble for saying this on air but my mom loved farts she would (laughs) burst into laughter at farts so our 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 dinners were so not proper there was not the you know sit and um, do not uh, seen and not heard and it, we would try to exercise table manners to the best of our ability but my parents had been raised so strictly and with so much structure that was what mm. they decided as parents they were going to remove all of that so probably from the outside if I looked in now our dinners would look a little bit uh, loose around the edges but lots of fun and lots of laughter and always homemade food and always mm. uh, I ate a lot I just remember loving what was on the table <laughs> except for those infernal Brussels sprouts and oh and eggplant we had a lot of eggplant I didn't like eggplant either I think I'm traumatized about Brussels sprouts and eggplant from my childhood so yes that that's how family dinner looked I think would be fair to say 
You said you did go to public school. I did, yes. Were you homeschooled for a short period of time? No, uh, my brother was. Your brother was. My brother was, yes. I, I turn my new age on July 1st. And when we moved to Fort Langley area, I, was, I had just turned five. I wanted to go to school more than life itself, but I didn't want to go to kindergarten. I wanted to go to grade one. I was ready for grade one, in my mind, 100% ready. Now, the thing that I, I must stress that I do understand the public school system has changed and modified and grown in many ways since then, in the sense that they now try to accommodate bright students and interbaccalaureate students and second language, so many different options. Back then, you either skipped a grade or you didn't skip a grade. And they felt that five was far too young to skip a grade. Mm-hmm. They said that the only thing I could do was attend kindergarten. So I kind of said no. And so did my parents. And so I didn't attend kindergarten. For that first year we lived in Fort Langley, I did life. I don't, I don't remember mom schooling me as per se, but she says that from the moment that I was, so Shen was one, so I would have been four and a half that she used to go to this, at one point we lived in Burnaby for a short while in a trailer park, and she would go to the secondhand stores and get workbooks. You know those workbooks that we'd sometimes have in school? Mm -hmm. And they would be partially used or maybe not used at all, and I would voraciously go through them. She said there was a stack in the kitchen, and I was just into workbooks. I was into those kind that had the perforated edges on the top corner so you could tear off the corner when you were done the page. Mm -hmm. I was into finishing, accomplishing, and seeing my work, and... I, I, who knows what they what the work was like, but uh, mom said I was always schooling myself, so to speak. So I was finding ways of, I read young, I was interested in doing things, but I wasn't stuck in an actual system until I was six. And then Shen was pulled out of school when he was in grade two, when he was, no, grade three, when he was eight, because... <laughs> Again, another limitation in the school system at the time. You know how they're not supposed to compare siblings? Well, Mm -hmm. they did immediately. So I came into the school and I was one of those voracious students that wants, you know, success for herself just because it makes me feel good and loved doing the books, loved doing the work. And my brother's different from me and he didn't love it. And he found it hard to pay attention. He found it hard to focus. I think that at that time there was one teacher that took a bit of empathy and brought in a psychiatrist that diagnosed Shen as having some sort of, uh, I don't think it had a name back then, but some sort of, uh, any something about the way he takes in auditory learning. Mm. He would process it in a one, one thing at a time way. He didn't process globally. So when he was in a classroom, this and this and this and this and all these different things going on would kind of just make him go quiet and he would just focus on one thing whatever the thing he was focusing on he was learning everything about it but sometimes it was example laying on his back in kindergarten and staring at the ceiling and counting you know those dots and those perforated Mm -hmm. yeah so ergo when he stayed home with mom and homeschooled for that year he aced grade three and did wonderfully but then our financial situation as a family got to the point where mom had to go back and get part-time work so he had to go back to school Mm -hmm. he would have really benefited from being homeschooled by mom I think that to this day I profess that I would not have because my mom and I are uh, such close loving deep friends and so bonded and connected And I could say this to her face and have on many occasions. I just don't learn very well from her if it's if it's done in a formal fashion. I feel that her manner of teaching 
is for a child that needs that gentle sing song let me approach this with a soft manner and I am so let's get it over with just give me the goods let's go and so I just feel like we would have wasted a lot of or I would have wasted a lot of time just trying to defy her natural wonderful gentle way mm-hmm. so and no other form of learning was available at the time you couldn't take correspondence learning unless there was something diagnosed as being wrong with you or that you were you know dying on the couch at home so yes I went to public school all that to say (laughs) and there were no honors courses no AP courses they wouldn't skip me because they felt that uh and this is interesting actually an interesting statement because of not taking kindergarten they felt that it was going to socially damage me if I skipped a grade Hmm. Right, because that kindergarten year—that's you know—that's the one that builds you. It's when you make all your oh, friends, you make all your friends that you're with for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's when you fully understand yourself as a human being and what you have to give, etc. So, sorry for the sarcasm, but that's, that's kind of sums up how I feel about it. These days, I do feel so my true self is my five-year-old self, my kindergarten self, a okay. lot of the time. Okay, but we'll save that for another. Conversation. Okay, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. So, and you were doing ballet this whole time throughout school. Yes. Fairly intensely. Um, the teacher that I worked with and, and still have as a very dear friend and dear to my heart, I believed in a training that was realistic and gentle and kind to the student. So I wouldn't say I got intense about it till I was 11. Before that, it was all just lovely dancing and I don't think I did more than three classes a week until I was about 11 Hmm. she really that was not her way and also those were not the days of doing jazz tap musical theater etc it was ballet and that was it uh the rest of the time would just be dancing at home I gave a lot of performances in the living room and so post-secondary did you do any post-secondary I did uh but I didn't do it post-secondary, meaning right afterwards. Right after high school, I left for Europe to dance. And I then pursued quite voraciously until I was around 20, oh, around your age, actually, 28. I, it was all about just my career and, and dancing professionally. And I'm always learning. I feel like that never turned off. But formally, no, I didn't go back until I was, I'm, I'm hesitating here because I'm not 100% sure if I was 27 or 20. It doesn't really matter. It's semantics. So I went back and I decided that I was going to become a psychologist. So I started at what is now known as Capilano University. It was Capilano College then. Had to do the whole adult uh, entrance equivalency exam and write the letter that says this is why you want to be there. And took my first and my second year psych courses there. Also took a Spanish course and a kinesiology course and two wonderful art history courses that I cannot speak enough about the professor. Everything else was, I, I guess, a little illuminating. And I'm, I'm not trying to tiptoe around. It was disappointing because I, I realized two things very quickly about myself. One of them was that I had been practicing psychology, albeit without a degree, for many, many years already. And to have to go back and go through the structure and the the very restrictive limitations to my learning for four years 
and then spend another four years under the auspices of someone who would teach me how to think about my learning and to follow other people's methods and then possibly to finally practice. I, I realized, no, I, I, that's not me. I, I respect that someone else does that and does it brilliantly, but that's not me. And in regards to other subjects that captivated my interest, none captivated it so wholly that I thought, yes, I can walk completely away from teaching dance and dancing professionally. And I also kept thinking somewhere down the line, I'm going to want a child. And I don't want the child to be compromised while I'm studying whatever it is I'm studying. Mm. So, yes, I did attend for three years and did not end up walking away with a complete degree, which is fine. I think that's going to be my life as bits here and there as I go. In what way were you practicing psychology before then? Tell me more about this. Oh, I I hesitate to sound at all like a know-it-all or at all overly confident, but I have spent my life literally attracting people that have questions and inadvertently answering them with my thoughts, you know, that I wouldn't call them expert thoughts. It wasn't like I whipped out a textbook and told them according to so-and-so because I always had an opinion and I always felt fairly strongly about my opinion. And if I didn't know what they were asking me or had no experience in it, my opinions mostly based on experiential moments in my life, I would always research it because I was interested. I thought, well, here's an opportunity to find out whatever this person is asking. And then I started teaching very young. I was 14 and students ask questions. Even when you're teaching them dance, there's other things that come up. And so as I got older, I would say probably by the time I was 20, definitely 2021, 20, I was dealing with a lot of information that students would pass on to me or query me about, or I would just be dealing with in the dynamics of a classroom, mostly with young women. And it was important to address it delicately and as wisely as I could at that young age. And I would definitely say even to this day I look back and yes those were counseling sessions Mm -hmm. and many of them outside the classroom and in some cases it was with parents about their student and in some cases it was the owner of the studio about the student so yeah I felt I, I guess in my own way as though I had been practicing for a very long time and it, it was interesting to have the formal education circumscribe oh that would have been the so-and-so theory or that's the Watsonian theory or that's the but only interesting to a point to where I be, I started thinking of those humans and those eyes that had been looking up at me and those those crying moments you know so much that I just thought that's not in a textbook that's a human interchange that I'm not going to compromise at this point or or invalidate by saying that it wasn't real because I didn't have a degree. Mm -hmm. Does that explain that? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm wondering about um, beginning teaching at a young age and you said you were 14 when you started? I was, yeah. And yeah, having questions from your students about, well, I guess I'm wondering how you learned how to teach. I have no idea. My My dad will unequivocally say that I'm a born teacher. Uh, He said that I have teachers in my lineage. He feels very strongly about, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. 
the nature nurture thing. My grandma, my aunt, my uncle, all on the brewer side were teachers. My mom does have natural teaching ability. Her mom, albeit totally uh, autocratically and and dictatorially, but she definitely was a teacher in her own right as well. I think I think it is part of my my natural makeup. I taught. I was actually just telling my daughter the other morning. She was saying, what should I do with my my babies today? And I said, why don't you teach them something? She says, well, what should I teach them? And I started regaling her with a tale of, I taught my stuffed animals and my dolls. There's photos of me having them all sitting down. And I've got a blackboard out. And I'm teaching them how to read and write. And I think I was probably six, seven, eight, nine. I started the first ballet classes I took. I came home and wanted to teach my mom the ballet classes. So it's just been something that I can't. I almost can't help myself. I'll be out in public sometimes and someone will say something incorrectly or make a mistake that just needs one little correction. And I find myself holding back, not because I want to be right, but because it's just, oh, that just needs this little, and then you'll feel great about it. And then I think, oh, no, (laughs) you are out in public being a public normal person right now. So keep your thoughts to yourself. So I can genuinely say I have no idea. I think, uh, I, and they used to use me for that, and I, I'm going to use that word. They used me or utilized me for that in school, public school, from a very young age. In grade four, they had me teaching other students that didn't understand certain hmm. things. Yeah, that's what I got to do instead of taking AP courses. I got to teach the other students. So perhaps it just helped my career. It helped me become a better teacher. Mm-hmm. So, I think when I think about you as my teacher, when well, I still you still teach me things all the time. Um, but yeah, I, I have to think about, well, you do stand out to any other teacher that I've had in terms of what the environment was like, uh, in terms of learning and honesty and openness and willingness, uh, around conversation. And yeah, I mean, that is the request of uh, your students that have brought us to this mm-hmm. moment here to talk about things. It's just the openness around conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's what's that? Why is that? Why? why? Well, what's that like? I guess yeah. I feel I feel like I I love one or two teachers in my life deeply. What I love about them is their humanness and their genuine love for what they did and their genuine open acceptance of me as a human being that stands out in my mind and I think that fed that desire to continue what just naturally seemed to flow from my background because my background was so unorthodox and because we couldn't help but quote-unquote stand out like a sore thumb you either are that and you just are in your skin and you are being accepted or else you are being repelled on some level. And I felt that teachers quite often were taken with me when I was their student because I was so different and it became kind of like a show pony thing Hmm. that made me feel quite uncomfortable and quite often uncomfortable for everyone else's sake because no one likes to be in a position, I guess what one could call it, no one likes to be the favourite because you know someone else is the non-favorite and you know that someone is feeling bad and they're sending bad feelings towards you and you never asked for any of it. Mm -hmm. And no one likes to be the non-favorite because you just want to be accepted for who you are and why does someone have to be the favorite in the first place? So I think all of those thoughts and the fact that young people are 
people. They're humans. They're, they're not little mini versions of ourselves and they're not little malleable uh, pieces of clay that we're just supposed to shove a bunch of thoughts and ideas into. They are, half the time, they are eager and desirous of explaining what and why they're going through something or experiencing something a certain way or having troubles with something. Granted, yes, I'm supposed to be teaching movement that doesn't have a voice to it. But if you don't open up that voice, then I'm not going to get very far with the movement. And I feel that having done courses in research over the years with psychologists, it has been it has reassured my weird approach or again, my outside the box approach that I was just recently reassured that teachers that engage so they actually look you in the eye and they make you feel like you matter to me what's going on with you you're going to get more from that student because they're going to get more from themselves and it's it's not about them just giving you stuff it's about you sharing with them so that they can then give to themselves Hmm. and I feel like I'm just probably actually vocalizing this for the first time in my life because I've never thought about it that way it's just been well, of course, conversation is going to be part of it because I'm, I'm not teaching an army and I'm not teaching everyone to be exactly like one another. That would be such gross hypocrisy, first of all. And, I, and, and deep down, I also truly don't believe in that on any level whatsoever, that I think that conversation, albeit guided conversation and safe conversation, has to be part of it. So I know there have been times as a young teacher that I was uncomfortable with the direction conversations took, uh, there's always someone that will push the envelope a little bit or test you or perhaps they're in a place that they've had so much harm that, they, that they're that they throwing out some of that, that bad vibe and that harm and just seeing what else happens around them. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, it was actually a wonderful, again, lesson to how to make that okay for that person to be experiencing that but not okay for them to be putting it on anyone else, including me, because that's not my place to fix that for them. I can facilitate them fixing it for themselves. Does that answer that question? Yeah, it opens up so many more questions. I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking about, I mean, if, yeah, if I think of the best thing that I learned from you, it was... Um, Oh man, there's so much pressure on what I'm about to say. All of a sudden, I feel <laughs> drum roll. Um, but really, you asked me to be myself there, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, that allowed me to learn and to thrive in a way I didn't in other environments because that wasn't the precedent that was right. set right. ahead of me. Um, and especially at that age, you often teach teenagers most yes. of the time. Yeah, that's my main body of teaching. Um, yeah, that is, of course, that's the biggest time that you are figuring out the world, observing the world, mm-hmm. wondering about yourself mm-hmm. and the things around you. And just to have the request to be present with who you are, that was the biggest um yeah, the biggest lesson I could have learned, I guess, in that space. I'm glad to hear that. And I guess the other thing I'm curious about, if you can answer that for me, because I I ask this of my students currently all the time. I ask it of everyone that I ever work with because I do do a lot of workshop work. So injury and health 
sorry, injury prevention and health maintenance. But sometimes we'll have workshops that that stem from that and they end up being more personal, uh, let's call personal health issues and personal health regard and personal self care and such comes from that. And that opens up a whole other uh, sometimes very private place. And I say over and over, I say at the beginning of the workshop or the class, what's said in here stays in here. This is a, this is a, excuse me, using our Sarah's space, but this is a safe Sarah's place (laughs) in which we have space to be ourselves. And that it's really important that you all give each other that, because I find that I find that so many teaching modalities, so many of the structures out in society today are so divisive and they create cliques and they create groups and they create that person's weird for thinking that. They create hierarchies and I am completely against that. And I feel that when you're sitting in my space, quote unquote, or the space that I am leading at that time, I want all of you to sit there and be able to be whatever yourself is being at that time. Because sometimes, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure you remember. Do you remember the conversation? Goodness, you're about 13 or 14. It was, I think we either, the power had gone out or it was a strange night. It was wintry, probably October, November, and it was cold. Maybe the heat had gone out. For some reason, we weren't doing a regular class. We were stretching at the time because the floor was heated. And that was the only place that was warm. Oh. And the conversation got into thoughts about spirituality and thoughts about the 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 unseen world mm. and you brought up ghosts and and you giggled nervously because someone looked at you and I don't even I don't recall who exactly was in the room but strangely and you kind of gave them a sharp look and then you looked back at me and you said well I can believe in ghosts can't I and I said of course you can believe in ghosts <laughs> and it was it was a wonderful moment because you were really getting to that time of your life where you were asserting and I feel like 13, 14 really is that place for so many people asserting I'm different because I think this or I think that. And I've heard you people thinking this. And I don't think that. And then the, then there's this really important formative time that is, is it OK that I think this? Hmm. And I feel like I tried so hard because you were part of a large group that I cared for very deeply. And you were all very different and you were all from the same area, but from disparate backgrounds and households and family structures and and abilities to think about the world and depths of thinking about the world. And yet you were all very good friends. So I felt like you already had a sense of caring for one another. So can you please just reassure me that that was what you felt, <laughs> that you were given that place that it was okay to be yourself, mm-hmm. and however, quote unquote, odd it might have appeared to be? I am a very odd person, and I am very much so myself. Maybe, maybe that's why we're <laughs> such good friends. <laughs> so, affirmative. Okay, wonderful. Um, good to hear. I think that we should take a pause. Okay, let's do that. We will continue yes. this discussion Please. about learning spaces. Okay. And, you know, people will get to find out if I still believe in ghosts. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Sarah.